What's up, everybody? I'm Sarah. I'm Shona. I'm Sam. And I'm Bobby. And this is Speaking of Murders. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Speaking of Murders, and welcome to the new listeners. Before we get started on today's episode, a little bit of business. We have another show, Speaking of Missing Persons. Make sure you're going and checking that out. Uh, If you want to see photos associated with today's episode, you can find those on our socials. Those are linked in the show notes. And while you're in there, check out our Patreon. We're putting out bonus episodes every other week. If you subscribe, you get those. You get a shout-out on the show. And our eternal appreciation, we love you for it. Um, Don't forget to leave us five stars, leave a review, share it with your family, your friends, your coworkers, whoever. And uh, yeah, so all of that stuff said. Lay it on me, Sarah. Give it to me straight. I'll I'll lay it on you. (laughs) You're not going to like it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're going to talk about a whole different Gary so, we talked about Ted Bundy. Yeah. During Ted Bundy, we talked about a man named Gary Ridgway. Indeed, we did. So, now we're going to go into the story of Gary Ridgway. Oh, sweet. But I'm not going to talk about him until the last episode. And just so you know, this is going to be like four parts. No oh boy. A long one. Yeah. And first, I'm going to set the scene. Okay, because this took place similar area as where Ted Bundy was. So mm-hmm. we're going back to like the Washington. Northwest. Going oh, okay. back to Washington. What is with that area? Where Ted Bundy was. Me and Sarah were just having this conversation. And Gary Brudos. That a lot of murders happen from California up around the Canadian coast and then down the east coast. Like, a lot of the murders that we have talked about, they have been in those locations. Canadian border? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Like, like uh, you confuse me, because I'm thinking up the West Coast, and then you said Canadian coast, when you say and I'm coast, waiting for Alaska. I mean, yeah, water. I meant Canadian border. <laughs> <laughs> I meant the Canadian border. Like, you know, North Dakota. You confuse the shit out of me. Minnesota. Bobby's like, Alaska? But we did talk about Alaska with Robert Hansen. So, still also accurate. Um, Yeah, we're just going to go in, pretty much I'm going in order now. Because it was like Robert Hansen was happening at the same time as Ted Bundy. And now Ted, Gary Ridgway happened, was happening pretty much while Ted Bundy was going through it in prison. So... We'll talk about Ted, but not in this episode. All right. Because he's involved in this. Oh. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, like I said, we're in Washington, the Seattle-Tacoma area, which is pretty much where Ted Bundy was. I thought you said we weren't going to talk about him in this episode. <laughs> we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little. No, oh. we're not. Okay. 
Maybe we will, maybe we won't, Bobby. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to the Green River. Okay. Which is now known as the Green Duwamish River. Don't know why. Probably because of this guy. Yeah. It's located in Seattle, Washington. It flows out of the Cascade Mountains just north of Mount Rainer through Flaming Geyser State Park and down to Elliott Bay through the communities of Auburn, Kent, and Tukwala. So it's a pretty big river. This would be the river that would give Gary Ridgway his nickname because this is where his first five victims were found either in or along the riverbank. First five. First five. Okay. That implies that there's another five. You are correct. And I'll just give you a spoiler alert. There's 49 confirmed, 70 that he confessed to. Holy shit. Wow. Holy shit. I'll give you that spoiler, and I'll also give you the spoiler that he was considered... The most pro- prolific serial killer in the United States until Sam Little was arrested. Okay, so where were we at here? First five victims. This is why he got the, the nickname by the media, the Green River Killer. It would take investigators a long time to find the man responsible for these awful murders we are going to talk about in this episode. And by a long time, like 20 plus years. Oh, Holy snap. shit. Yes. Was he active all those years? We'll get to it. Boy, we're going to get to it. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get to it. First, though, I'm going to tell you about the area in which the Green River Killer picked up his victims because it's important. So the road was known as Pacific Highway South, or it was nicknamed Pack Highway. It began as Highway 99 and then became Old 99 when Washington finished construction on the I-5 freeway in 1968. Highway 99 was the first of its kind stretching from the Mexico border to the Canadian border. Oh, wow. The 26-mile strip of the Pack Highway between Tacoma and Seattle became a busy area when they built the SeaTac airport. All this right. this created like a whole new world in this area. It brought in big name hotels like the Hilton and the Marriott, but it also brought smaller, more seedier hotels, motels, I should say. In the early 70s, this is where Robert Hansen gets brought back into it a little bit. Because in the early 70s, men from the Alaska pipeline would fly into the SeaTac airport for, like, rest and relaxation with their wallets full of money. Mm. Sex Interesting. When you say rest and relaxation, you mean drugs and prostitutes. And alcohol. And alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. As long as we're on the same page. A lot of them did this because of the reputation of the area. At the time, there was tens of thousands of people on this strip constantly. It was a busy strip. This helped prostitution flourish by the mid to late 70s. Many of the sex workers that worked the Pack Highway were very young. 
often runaway teenagers. It's claimed that they often had drug habits or and were not or and were accompanied by pimps that they usually referred to as their boyfriends. So remember that because later sometimes I'll say their boyfriend. It never verifies if it's really their boyfriend or if it was their pimp. Okay. Gotcha. These boyfriends would provide drugs, handle the money, buy their working clothes, and sometimes drive them from city to city. This, again, is what we talked about in the Robert Hansen case where these women kind of traveled a circuit. Right. They went from Seattle to Anchorage to San Francisco. Like, they went in a line following this pipeline working as sex workers. Not all of the sex workers had pimps and boyfriends. Some worked independently, but this did not go over well in Seattle because pretty much the pimps in this area would try to bully them into, like... I'm I'm picturing this in terms of, like, union and non-union. Yeah, pretty much. Like, these are union prostitutes, okay? And if you don't join the the local, you know, whatever... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, they, uh, it's, it, I mean. Yeah, you'll make more, but it's not going to go well for you. And it didn't, mm. because women that uh, were in murdered? this situation that did not have pimps, they would get beat or raped. Or murdered? Not murdered. Just beat and raped by these pimps to, like, try to force them, like, this is what's going to happen to you all the time if you don't. Oh, I didn't work for let us. me control your money. Yeah. When I said murdered, I meant by the people they're... they're by the Johns. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, they would claim... I, I go into that a little bit. They would claim that if they would work for the pimp, then they would get protection from the John or from other pimps or whatever. But in reality... They weren't protecting them because they were spending their time in the motel room counting money and selling drugs while the girl is on the street doing her own thing. Right. You know what, though? I literally just had this whole conversation about how pimps are useless. (laughs) They really are. Because unless you are going in that room to watch what's happening, what are you doing? Exactly. Taking her money. Exactly. (laughs) So the women that worked the highway that actually worked the highway, the pack highway, were called street walkers. Now, there were girls that worked where they would just go to the hotels and motels and just work in the parking lots, or they would go to other places in that area and work, but the women who actually worked along the strip of the highway were called street walkers or something. Okay, reason. it makes yeah, sense because like they were actually walking the street advertising themselves. I right. I feel like it would be a lot safer for them to work at like a brothel with a madam. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely, to have a pimp. because then... Like, shout out to the Red Onion. Yeah, that, that was yeah. the way to do uh, sex work back, at, like, back then because... Yeah, because the they p- still got their damn money and, and protection. She and the bodyguards were like outside the doors constantly. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So most of these women were only performing oral sex on their johns or clients for an average of $30 each time. The best hours were between 3 and 9 p.m. Yeah, me too. (laughs) 
She said, said I jack up, I jack price. up the price. <laughs> and I said, me too, man. Blech. Putting your mouth there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the same thing. To a bunch of random strangers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so best hours were 3 to 9 p.m. Because the highway was the busiest with men getting off work and heading home or going to the bar on the strip. Now, this strip is like what you think. Like, the strip clubs, topless bars, gay bars. Like, it's a lot of seedy businesses. Yeah. By the 80s, the number of sex workers on the strip exploded. And between 1982 and 1983, there were hundreds of women on the 10-mile stretch of highway working as sex workers. Yeah, Holy shit. You would think that they would just start fighting each other at that point. I'm sure they did. Oh, I'm sure they did, Just too. because, like, bitch, you're taking my business back up. What made things so much easier easier was that surrounding the strip and airport beginning in 1975 all the houses in that area that were established houses were bought by a company like a government company and so all the houses on the north to south path where the planes flew over were purchased and boarded up and a lot of them were torn down because who's going to live right where planes land and whatever? Like, I mean, they do now, but back in the 70s, it was like a thing where they would, the government so would just buy all the houses. there was a bunch houses. of abandoned vacant, vacant houses in the area. Yes. That's my next thing, is that left behind vacant residential lots, overgrown landscapes, and boarded up houses all with the sound of planes flying overhead. I see where this is going. Sounds awful. This created the perfect place for sex workers to bring their clients. What is What it also created was the perfect place to commit murder. Yeah. The second the houses went abandoned, I'd be like, okay, time to move yeah, down the pipeline. Loud-ass planes flying overhead all day long. Time to move down the pipeline. Yeah. So Gary Ridgway would go undetected over the years because he was described as being able to hide in plain sight better than any other serial killer. Better than Ted? Yes. Ted was Ted was, Ted was considered a chameleon. Ted was considered a chameleon, but Ted was very good looking and kind of stood out because of his yeah. charismatics and his... Um, attractive and well-spoken and blah 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 gotcha. whereas gary ridgeway is more of your average joe he's like oh, okay. an average not really special kind of person like i said we're not gonna go into detail about his life right now because one don't give a shit two we're gonna i'm pretty much telling it how it happened kind of a deal like they didn't know who the fuck he was right for 20 some years so at the beginning of this case, police had no idea who was using the pack highway as their personal hunting ground, because that's exactly what he was doing. So we start on July 15th, 1982, when the body of 16-year-old Wendy Caulfield was found along the Green River. 
it barely made the news in King County, Washington, because people were too busy freaking out at the time because two people in Auburn, Washington, had died suddenly after taking extra-strength Excedrin capsules that were laced with cyanide. The bottles were purchased at two separate locations, one in Kent and one in Auburn. Okay, so back to Wendy. Wendy was last seen leaving her foster home on July 8th, 1982. She was known to work as a sex worker along Pacific Highway South. She would become known as the Green River Killer's first victim, but nobody believes that she is his first victim. But gotcha. she's known as his first victim. Her parents divorced when she was 13. She lived with her mother until she became, it's literally described in air quotes, too much for her mom to handle. And she was put into state custody. Seriously? Yes. Her body was found by two young boys riding their bicycles on the Peck Bridge in Kent County. She was floating in the water down below the bridge. So the Peck Bridge is 150 feet across over the Green River. This area is only 15 miles from the Issaquah and Taylor Mountains where Ted Bundy disposed of his victims. Oh, damn. Wendy was naked except for her socks and shoes. Her underwear, jeans, and shirt were wrapped tightly around her neck and had been used as a ligature to strangle her. During her autopsy, it was determined that she died from strangulation. She suffered a fractured hyoid bone as well as hemorrhaging in her neck muscles. And on top of that, her humerus was broken in her left arm, which... The humerus is the upper part upper of the arm part of where the arm. bicep is. Yes. And in later interviews, Gary would say, yeah, I didn't mean to break her arm. It happened during the struggle, and I heard it snap. Oh, boy. It was believed she was murdered right after she went missing on July 8th. Then just one month later, on August 12th, 1982... And I'm just going to tell you now, don't pay too much attention to the dates, especially in part two, because the dates will drive you absolutely mad because they don't talk about the green, the green river site is the only one where the dates follow each other. Gotcha. Which we'll talk about in the second part. So... On August 12th, 1982, another woman's body was found in the Green River about a quarter of a mile south of Wendy's. This body was found by a worker of PD&J Meat Company while he was on a cigarette break. She was completely naked with no clothes being found and tr like her body was trapped in tree branches and logs. So it made police believe that she had floated downriver and just got snagged there like this wasn't where she went into the river okay makes sense yeah. yeah so at this point a detective named dave reichert was given this case okay and he will go on to be super involved 
and spend his whole life trying to figure out who the Green River Killer is. This woman was identified as 22-year-old Deborah Lynn Bonner. She was a mother of three small kids, a sex worker on the Pack Highway. She had been arrested 30 days prior to her body being found for prostitution. The last time she was seen alive was July 25th at the Three Bears Motel on Pack Highway and 216th Street. This was two to three miles east of the river, so not far. Right. She grew up in Tacoma, had quit school, and then had, like, a tough time finding a job. She tried to join the Navy, but did not get accepted. After she fell in love with the wrong guy and ended up as a sex worker to support him and her children. So she tried to make a good life out of herself, but ended up getting involved with a pimp, pretty much. She wanted out of the life and was actively trying to leave. Even though both Wendy and Deborah were found so close to each other, police were not really connecting their murders at the time. Right, because there's nothing similar about either one of them. Except that they were sex workers. Right. Three days later, three days, a man is floating down the Green River looking for bottles because back then certain glass bottles you would get money for recycling right so he was floating down the river looking for bottles to take to get money for recycling apparently that was a big thing back then because people would just throw shit into the river our grandparents threw all of the soda cans anyone ever drank behind their house and then they would pick them up and take them and get money No, I was more saying, like, it was common for people to float down the river to look for bottles. Oh, gotcha. I mean, you know, that makes sense, though. You give them incentive to clean up so you don't have to pay the state to do it. Well... So the state doesn't have to pay anyone to do it. This guy is floating down the river, minding his own damn business, when he sees something under the water that kind of looks like two dolls. But they look too real to be dolls so he leaves the river and goes and calls police because he's like they kind of look like dolls but i'm not sure and he was right there was not dolls it was two female bodies dave Riker and a patrol officer named sue peters were the first on the scene followed by major dick kraski who was the commander of the major crimes unit, which I know Bobby's laughing about the fact that his name is Dick. No, he's a major dick. Yeah, major dick. Major dick. Yeah, Yeah, well, he's a major now because uh, he was a lieutenant back when he was called out to Issaquah, Washington for a victim of Ted Bundy's. So now he's in working the new serial killer case also. So... How old were the two women that this guy floating on the river thought that they were dolls? We'll get to it. Okay. The riverbank was very steep. Okay. And the grass was like six feet tall along this riverbank. Holy shit. The bodies were concealed from the road and had been weighed down in the water with large rocks 
laid on their breasts and abdomen. And when I say large rocks, everything I read describes them as boulders. So large. When the three officers made their way through the tall grass towards the water, Reichert slipped and almost landed on something. He stumbled backwards and realized that he almost landed on a third female body. Holy shit. Whoa. He, like, literally almost fell right on top of her. She looked to be in her mid-teens, had a pale complexion, but had severe sunburn, which they believed happened after death because she was laying in the open. Well, right. Kind of. She had her own shorts wrapped around her neck. They knew the murderer had the murderer had to be someone who was super strong to carry three bodies plus the rocks down this very slippery riverbank. This would be no easy task for the group of investigators, the medical examiner, and the dive team. It took all of these people to get the three bodies back up the embankment. But one man took them down there. That's bonkers. Yeah, that's crazy. It would take some time to identify the women because of how long they were in the water. Because, you like, fingerprints are all, like, messed right. up. But the first to be identified was 31-year-old Marsha Faye Chapman. Now... She is described as being an extremely attractive black woman, but she was so petite that her friends called her tiny. So she was very small statured. She lived on the strip with her three children and mostly supported them with sex work. She had left her apartment on August 1st of 1982 and never came back. She was identified using her fingerprints because she... It hers were not completely gone, and she had been arrested before. The other two women would be harder. So police made sketches of them and released them to the public. One of the three women had been completely naked in the water. The other one was wearing her bra, but it was pulled over her breast and, like, twisted. Okay. All three women had been strangled just like Wendy and Deborah had, but that info was not released to the public at the time. Two of the women had been raped, and this is going to hurt you. The killer then crammed triangular-shaped rocks so tightly into their vaginas that a medical examiner had to surgically remove them. Christ. Now, was that done... It was done after death. Okay. When asked about this later, Gary said the rocks were there, so why not? You're fucking kidding me. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm just, I find it relieving, even in the slightest, that they didn't have to endure that. that. They didn't have to feel that. If he was going to kill them anyway, at least he waited until they were dead before he started to mutilate them that way. Yeah, I mean, that is one thing. He does the most of the things to them after they're already dead. It's just the whole thought it's, process it's of really the, the nonchalant, eh, well, careless. I mean, why not? Like, I saw rocks. 
Uh, well, I think that's just kind of a serial killer thing. Is the these are not people no. to them. <sighs> okay, continue. The next to be identified was 17-year-old Cynthia Hines. She was an outgoing black woman that was known to be, again, absolutely beautiful. She went by the nickname Cookie. She felt safe on the SeaTac strip because she thought her pimp would protect her. He told police he had not seen her since August 11th near the Pack Highway and South 200th Street, and she was getting into a black Jeep. Cynthia was the other girl found in the water. So it was Cookie and Tiny were in the water. Now, the third girl that Detective Riker almost fell onto was, her name was Opal Mills, and she was barely 16. Like, just turned 16. She was biracial. Her mother was white and her father was black. Her mother told investigators she had last seen Opal on August 12th and she had told her mom she was going to work. Now, her family has argued forever that she was not a sex worker, but she did know Cookie. Okay. That's how she, disc- that's how she referred to her as her parents to her parents and the day that they saw her last she was going to meet cookie to paint houses is what she told her family gotcha and she had called them that afternoon from and said she was at a phone booth in angel lake state park okay Opal was known to disappear for a couple days at a time, but there was no indication she was involved with sex work. And like I said, her friends and family say she was not. For a short time, Opal's brother was a suspect in her murder, which is so stupid because for him to be a suspect in her murder, he would have had to kill the other two at least. Or, yeah, been there knew of the person that killed the other two something something yeah well news outlets did this they kept saying that he was opal's pimp and a drug dealer but police like cleared him immediately because first of all he's also a teenager at the time and he would later say, like, I was just a gangly, insecure kid who played the saxophone and had two guinea pigs. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't think he did that. I don't think he's strong enough to do all that. No. Because of Opal's murder, her father became a uh, alcoholic and died nine years later. That's sad. That's a shame. This is the murders that gave the serial killer the name the Green River Killer. So those five women. Investigators did their best to keep as much information about these five murders secret from the media. But it did not work out. It was an epic fail. King County Police set up surveillance vehicles in several locations along the Green River. They believed that their killer would either return to dump another body or, like Ted Bundy, he would return to the bodies to engage in necrophilia with them. Makes sense. So they set up 
surveillance vehicles. They staked out this area. Well, guess what? Fucking news helicopters flying in the area talking about the weather were like, oh, look, there's undercover cops. Why Very did they smart. do that? And blasted it all over the fucking news. What idiots. Very smart. You know, though, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> With the cases at this point, between the police departments and the news outlets, they do dumb shit. Oh, they do dumb shit. Constantly. I believe, truly, if the news would not have ruined their cover, they would have caught him then. Yeah, Yeah, it's very possible. Yes. Well, the news fucked up, and not only did most of Washington see this news broadcast, they're pretty, they were pretty sure... The Green River Killer saw it. Well, I mean, if he was from the area. Well, yeah. Because this is when he moved on to new locations to dump his victims. And we're going to talk about these locations or what are considered his dump sites. And it's going to get confusing. Some girls were found completely by themselves. Some are found in groups. Some are found years later. Anyway, it's pretty well believed that he saw this news broadcast because then he started using multiple sites at the same time. He would gotcha. he would wait in between dumping bodies. His whole MO changed. Like Right. Instead of being like, Oh, I'm gonna use this site and I'm gonna dump a bunch here and then I'll move on and blah blah blah. So yeah. The news fucked up hardcore. So he started discarding remains in remote wooded areas. He relied on the fact that animals would get rid of any evidence left behind. And like I said, he's doing this in an area where there's a lot of abandoned places. Thick woods, like, and airplanes flying overhead. Right. So, 16-year-old Giselle Lavorne was the next victim to be found on September 25th, 1982. So, exactly a year before I was born. She was in a wooded area a quarter of a mile from the SeaTac Airport's uh, southern runway. So, like, on the south part of the airport. This was seven miles from where he dumped the victims on the Green River. It was an area that she was known to take her clients to. So she oh, pretty okay. much took him to this place. Giselle was nude and partially decomposed. Just like Opal and Wendy, she had died from ligature strangulation. Not manual strangulation. Because she was found with a pair of men's socks wrapped around her neck. Throughout the discoveries of these six women... Detectives were split on whether the murders were connected. From the very beginning, after the first five women were found, some detectives believed that because Wendy and Deborah were white and Marsha, Cynthia, and Opal were black or mixed, that it was two different killers. Which, in theory, in theory... If you're thinking about a serial killer, it kind of does. Because they usually don't go back and forth. Yeah. They yeah. usually stick to one race. 
and it's usually what their race is. So it okay. makes sense why police would be like, okay, well, maybe these two are connected and these three are connected. Okay. But I'm, as far as talking about the race of these women from here on out, I'm not going to do that because they are all different races. He did not have a preference. It was whoever agreed to get in his car or truck or gotcha. whatever he was driving. So he was not a picky guy. He was not picky. So Marsha and Cynthia had been weighted down with rocks and also had, you know, whatever. So that's why they thought maybe they were related because they were found in the exact same way. Right. And the fact that Wendy and Opal had been strangled with with their clothes, it was like confusing them because the murders were not done the same exactly the same yeah exactly the same which is what usually happens with the serial killer is they're the same and he's going from i'll strangle you this way i'll strangle you with this i'll leave you here i'll leave you there i'll shove rocks inside of you in just six victims yeah they're all different they believed that giselle's murder was also not related to any of them that it was its own separate entity was hers really all that different? It was in a completely different location. Um, it was seven miles away. But she was killed in pretty much the same fashion as three other victims. Two other. Two other victims. Yeah. Giselle also worked as a sex worker and was last seen on July 17th, 1982, near the Pack Highway, just like the other women. After Giselle's body was found, King County officers thought the Green River Killer had moved on because they kind of, there was a stretch where they didn't find any bodies. But just because they didn't find any bodies didn't mean he wasn't killing people. They just weren't finding They just weren't finding them. Gotcha. The King County Police Department administrators were at a point of like leaving this entire investigation of these six women to Dave Reichert by himself. Oh boy. And the case kind of stalled out. Well, you got one guy on the job. Exactly. It's not possible. Reichert wanted a like a big task force. Like he was like come the hell on people like we have a serial killer. We need, like, a whole group of investigators to be working on this. But to higher-ups, they're like, okay, but, I mean, you guys haven't really found a body sub since September, so he's probably stopped killing. Uh, Great way to look wow. at it. Wow. You think they would still want to find who was doing it, though? Right. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're not killing anymore, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to tell like, you. Out of sight, out of mind, guys. I'm just going to tell you. Sorry, did you find a body? No? <laughs> Me the fuck either. So let's leave this shit the fuck alone and move on. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. They're like, That's a lot of paperwork. They're like, um, it's sex workers. Can you just move on? I know. And in the 80s and yeah. whatever, 70s. And pretty much Dave Reichert was like, uh, no, bitches. I'm not going to fucking move on. I'm going to fight tooth and nail to get a task force. So he, re he reached out to Robert Keppel, which if we remember, 
was a big deal on the Ted Bundy case. And there's our Robert. He <laughs> was our Robert in the Ted Bundy. And Keppel was now working at the Attorney General's office for the chief prosecutor as the chief criminal investigator. Keppel supervised statewide investigations, especially the tough ones that were sent to the state level from, like, local agencies that couldn't quite handle it. Yeah. Keppel started to review the Green River case on March 7th, 1983. He found that investigators did not really follow up on leads or with interviews. He felt that they let their own opinions about the victims cloud their judgment, just like in Robert Hansen. He chalked that up to their inexperience. His next step was he was going to visit these sites himself. Like, he wanted to know where the bodies were found. Like, what this environment looked like. In the area where Marsha, Cynthia, and Opal were found was off Frager Road. This is was like a very isolated location, even though it was only 10 minutes from airport traffic on the Pacific Highway South. It was like there was a little pull-off located in this area that was concealed by all the tall grass. And if, like, oncoming cars wouldn't be able to see you if you were sitting in this little turnoff until they passed you. So that meant it gave this killer the opportunity to see people coming before they saw him. Because he could see headlights and hear cars coming before they realized that there was even a car sitting there. Gotcha. So next he went to visit the site where Giselle's body was found. It was an area that had at one time been a neighborhood, but all the houses had been torn down, just leaving an overgrown cul-de-sac behind. Right. From the location of where her body was, you could see through the trees to the northwest airport runway and you could see the lights okay and to the east you could see the glowing neon lights from the topless bars along the SeaTac strip so this was not far from where she was working as a sex worker right there was intertwining roads that just led to dead ends it was the perfect place for a killer to murder his victim and dispose of bodies. In the case files, the investigators did have a prime suspect at the time. I'm assuming not Gary Ridgway? No. It was a cab driver who knew several of these victims. The biggest red flag to investigators was that he had a tough time accounting for his whereabouts during the time of the murders. Like, he couldn't really give them alibis. That's kind of a big deal for a taxi driver. Yeah. Yeah. And it also did not help that, you know, people kind of say, like we've said it before, if you insert yourself into a case, it makes you kind of seem more suspicious. suspicious. And that's exactly what he did. He called the detectives and was like, oh, I knew these women. Maybe I can help you. But then couldn't give them like what he was doing and where he was at the time of their disappearances correct maybe should think that through guy Guy. (laughs) yeah well 
I think he personally just wanted his 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. Because he was very vocal in the media, drawing a lot of attention to himself. Of course. Investigators were so convinced that he was their guy that they got a search warrant for him, his house, and his car. And found nothing. They also secretly followed him around for months. Well, I mean, I don't blame them. If he's putting himself out there as the center of attention... I don't blame them, but it kind yeah. of left things wide open for Gary Ridgway to be like, oh, well. Yeah, because maybe Gary paid him to. I doubt it. <laughs> hey, call and say that you know these women. Seriously doubt it. Here's $20. So Keppel suggested after reviewing all the files that the Green River Task Force should be beefed up. Like he agreed with Riker. He uh, said, you need way more people working this, not less people. Yeah. He pointed out that no serial killer had been caught with just by just one or two detectives working on the cases. And this dude is a serial killer. I mean, he killed six women. Right. Right. So far. He, like many others, believed the Green River Killer would not stop murdering until he was caught. He also believed that Wendy Caulfield's murder was not the first that this killer had committed. Just like predicted, the Green River Killer did not stop killing after the first six victims. And by December of 1983, police had linked 13 more murders Holy moly. to him. So by that point, it was what, 19 was his accredited body count yeah that they knew of jesus this showed his ability to change his methods and adapt to prevent from being caught and that is where i'm leaving you holy smokes 19 people in how how many a year in a year a year that was all in a year i wasn't even paying attention to the years what the fuck like you're a he's a busy guy yeah that's all you know about right now in a year how do you got the fucking time? He did nothing Christ. else. Okay, so there's 12 months in a year and he's at 19. That means that half the year he had at least killed two people in one month. Right. Shauna, if you were like truly paying attention to the dates, a lot of them went missing in July. I was ju- No, I was just doing like simple math. The six, most of them went missing in July and were found in August. I was just doing simple math there. I know, but I'm just saying the first six were probably more than likely all killed in a month. All right. Well, that was wild. Make sure you're coming back for part two of this story. And uh, don't forget to leave us five stars, leave a review, share the show with your friends, your family, coworkers, whoever. Check out the Patreon, get the bonus episodes, get a shout out. And uh, does anyone have any final thoughts? Yeah, the more you do something, the more likely you'll get caught doing that something. Not necessarily. No, your chances increase every single time you do it. Uh, Is that our fun fact for today? About getting (laughs) caught. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we'll see y'all back next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Bye.